0: Show you a better way. Hi, folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 20th, 2018, and this is episode 2186 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Tuesday, that's a Just Jack show. And here's how I got the topic for today's show. I jumped on something you guys might want to check out if you've never done so, the Survival Podcast Zello channel. I got on there and just hung out for a while, listening everybody chitter chat. And uh, then I said, "Hey guys, it's me. I'm here." And oh wow, Jackie. And I was like, uh, "Any ideas for some topics today?" And a bunch of stuff went around. And I heard most of it. It, was, it seems like if I get on Zello and take a walk around my property that the the F-16s out of Lockheed decided to strafe my property. Very low in formation. So there was times where I couldn't hear them because of the planes and what have you. But the the main topic that came up again and again with different angles to it was homesteading. Finding a homestead and side hustles on the homestead and living the homestead life. And I'm like, I can do all three of those in one. So that's what I'm going to do today. And that's where I got the idea on Zello. I don't get on Zello a tremendous amount of time. Uh, most of these sub-communities, what I try to do is I set them up, I get people together, and I get out of the way so they can be their thing. Uh, but I do jump on there once in a while. You might catch me, but I'll tell you what, you will catch some great people if you do it. We'll get to all of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's check out our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, RidgeWallet.com. Guys, um I've always fancied myself as a guy that wants to be a minimalist, but never pulls it off because I like stuff. I'll admit it, and I'm a prepper. So that makes it even worse because, well, I don't need that now, but I can put it away in case I need that type of thing. The Ridge Wallet has made me a minimalist, at least in what I'm carrying around in my Dad Wallet. It's about as big as a credit card and as thick as you'll make it, you know, when you stuff your stuff into it. And you'll stuff less stuff into it because of that. So I no longer get in my card. I'm sitting on like a loaf of bread on my right butt cheek, what have you. I've got RFID protection from people scanning my butt and stealing my credit card information. And I get compliments on it all the time. That was something I never expected. I don't really care, but it was kind of I- interesting to me that like, I start pulling it out of a restaurant, and I'm like, oh, that's the Ridge Wallet. I'm like, wow, okay. I think we did good bringing these guys on as a sponsor. And guess what? You can get a discount if you're an MSB member on the Ridge Wallet. And other products available at RidgeWallet.com, including the iPhone cases, uh, the power charger, and the awesome Daypack backpack. I'm probably going to pick one of those up. They sent me a free wallet and a free phone case. I'm probably not going to hit them up for a free backpack. I think that would be a cool thing to add to my daily run-around stuff. Uh, It seems pretty cool. Maybe I'll get a video out for you when I do. But you can check it all out today and get that discount if you're an MSB member. Next up, ButcherBox.com. You know... It, it's 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 kind of cool that you know you're like ah, maybe we need to pick up a little bit more meat and then you get your little email that says hey your next butcher box is on the way and like a day later this giant box of frozen meat arrives at your front door there's free bacon in there if you're an MSB member if you that's how you choose to use your ten bucks you get off every month I do and you know baby back ribs from pastured pork and organic beef and, and stew meat and Oh, the pork tenderloin, man. I'm telling you, you wrap that stuff in bacon and stuff it with jalapenos like we did on our first episode of Built On For Breakfast. Buddy, it's just great stuff. And it's like having your own personal shopper. I don't know about you guys, but I tend not, I know this is going to sound sexist or something, I tend not to let Dorothy pick out the meat. She's fine with that, by the way. I like to look at meat. And you look at a piece of meat and you go, not that one. Not, you know what I'm saying? If you're that person, not, this is like having someone that actually knows how to pick out meat pick the meat out for you. That's the quality you're going to get at ButcherBox.com. And again, discounts for members of the MSB. So check them out today and check out your MSB account so that you can get that discount. And if you this, this is one of those ones where you should go to the site and you should go through the banner. Because even if you're not MSB, I have a discount for you. It's just it only applies to the first purchase. So you don't want to miss that one out. Anyway, check them out, ButcherBox.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year in history. The year is the year 112. As we walk through history with David Verne and Southpaw Ben, we have a segment from David Verne today called What Do We Do About the Christians? In one of his letters to Trajan, Pliny writes on what to do about a new growing cult, Christianity. Pliny had been given some lists from anonymous sources exposing possible Christians. Trajan wrote back saying that trusting anonymous sources was dangerous and could lead to paranoia. He also gave orders that Christians shouldn't be sought out, but if one was on trial, they should be given a chance to recant their faith. If they refused to sacrifice to Roman gods, they were to be executed. My take by David Verne. The view of the, Ro- the Roman view of religion was very legalistic. They adopted local gods of conquered people, seeing that their local gods as entities should be worshipped as well. They also believed that if the gods didn't receive proper sacrifice that all the gods would stop supporting Rome. This made the Christian refusal to worship the state's gods a matter of national security. Christianity was also seen as a potential breeding ground for dissidents due to its success among slaves and the lower classes. Um, Does anybody else here sit here and go, maybe Trajan didn't really believe all of the religion stuff that, that was national, just like with that, by the way this goes down? Like, did Trajan just understand that religion was being used to control the masses? And, like, let's not go seeking these Christians out and causing... Because you see what the Romans wanted was the same thing your government wants. Everybody shut up, do their job, pay their taxes, and not cause any trouble. Now, if you stick out like that whack-a-mole popping up, then we're going to slam you down. Otherwise, just leave everything the hell alone. Do You think maybe that's why they adopted the local deities, not because they believed in them, because it made a conquered people more likely to accept being conquered? Hey, with her leaving that temple over there, we can still take our extra sheaves of wheat, too. Uh, Okay, great. Uh, Life goes on as, as normal, and we actually get some stuff we didn't have before? No, this ain't so bad. If you want to keep people in slavery, make their slavery comfortable. But see, you can't have a bunch of Christians running around and actually being public with what they're doing in this situation. You can have them do their thing and break bread down in a basement somewhere and leave everybody alone, but if they're seeing being disrupted and preaching a, a message of monotheism in a polytheistic society, well, then they disrupt order. I don't think this was so much about national security personally, and this is conjecture, my opinion, but I think this was about maintaining order and control of a population and seeing this Christian thing is just another thing people believed, and that's okay as long as they don't mess stuff up. As long as they don't cause problems, leave them be. That seems like what was going on here to me, and you see a lot of that in our society today. History doesn't always repeat itself, but it certainly often rhymes. On that note, if you like this show, before we get started today, remember the way you can make sure we're always here to bring you entertainment, education, etc., and the information that will make your life better, even if nothing goes wrong, is to become a member of the MSB, or Member Support Brigade. If you hang out with us for an hour to an hour and a half a day and you get something valuable out of it and you think it's worth 20 cents a day, consider joining. Then use your discounts and get your money back. It's that simple. So go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members Today to sign up and become a member of the Support Brigade. There's a lot of other great benefits. We'll tell you about sometime in the future. Well, let's get into this. So, again, I went on Zello today and this was kind of the thing that came most to the surface, that that also had enough flesh in it. There were a few ideas that I might do some segments and some feedback shows on, uh, but this one had enough flesh in it to make a full episode. So what we want to talk about today is homesteading from a standpoint of like finding the right homestead. Now if I go completely in depth on that, that would be a whole episode. And then homesteading from a standpoint of actually having your homestead provide for you And if I went really, really deep into that, that would be a whole episode. And homesteading from a side point of how do side hustles fit in and income off the profitability of the homestead fit in. But I thought, you know, if we go more at a high level with this and just some ideas and concepts you can take a flesh out for yourself, we can actually do all of that in one episode. It sounds ambitious, but I'm not only going to do it for you, I'm still going to keep the show under 90 minutes, which is my primary objective this year uh, without letting the show get too long. So we'll see if we can do that. So, I think what we should start out with is what actually makes a home into a homestead, and one of the most successful episodes I did back in the car days when I was used to tra- you know used to do this uh, show in my car during my fifty five mile commute was an episode called "From Home to Homestead and I realized i haven 't talked about that a lot uh, recently, and we should because it is a fundamental driving reality behind the messages that we teach here a home takes from you, a homestead provides for you. It is really kind of that simple. And what I mean is the average American thinks their home is their greatest asset, but generally they're up to their eyeballs in debt on it. They, pay, they usually buy the most expensive home they can afford, and therefore there's, there's nothing left in the budget to do other things smart. So they end up spending more money, not just in their mortgage. And then what they're worried about is property value, which we'll talk about today that's important too. But what I mean by that is they want the the, the the lawn, true green chem lawn, they want to fit into the HOA, they become members of you know the, the local golf club or whatever the hell it is, and they live the life that they think is the Beaver Cleaver, the Jordan, you know, June and Ward Cleaver life, which is nothing like the life that was... A bit, the modern Beaver, you know, leave it to Beaver life, is a disaster. And that house is like a giant sponge that sucks up every extra penny that they would ever have, or creates a lifestyle that will do that where the house does not. So the house becomes a money sink. And well, we got to keep up with the Joneses or the Smiths, whoever the hell they are. I don't give a shit who the Smiths and Jones are, but most people do. So that starter home that was at the edge, when they get to a point where they realize they can sell it and harvest equity, then they move up and they keep getting worse and worse and worse. That is the home of the modern American. The homestead is the place that we buy well within our means. We're smart about it. We look for places where we can improve it to increase its value. So instead of maintaining the property value through some facade, we we are willing to take a diamond a little bit in the rough and polish it so that if we do want to leave, we have that exit strategy, and that builds equity much more quickly. And since we can afford to pay for the home, we can afford to do that. We put in a little garden. Maybe we'll get some chickens. Some of the stuff we'll talk about today. But we start to live a little bit like our ancestors did, our great-grandparents. And then we start to actually have things get produced on our property that are provided to us, to, which, which prevents us from having to go off the property, which means spend money, to acquire them. And that's the fundamental difference. And when we're looking for that, we need to define the fundamental characteristics of a good homestead location. okay? And that can be difficult. And there was a lot of people today on Zello talking about, I really want out of this state. I really want out of this place. I want 50 acres. I want at least 5 acres. I want at least an acre. I mean, stuff like that. This community is full of that, and I don't blame you guys because I feel the same way. That's why I live on my little 3-acre place here near Azle, Texas, in an unincorporated area where nobody bothers me. That's the best thing about being here. It's a hard piece of land, but nobody bothers me. I can do whatever I want, and nobody bothers me. So my first fundamental consideration in choosing a homestead location is freedom. But it's freedom as you define it. So if some of the things that are important to me that I can do here are not important to you, and you and your family are happy with certain restrictions that are never going to bother you anyway, then you don't need to figure out what my version of freedom is. You need to figure out what your version of freedom is. But if you're going to move to a homestead and you have these dreams that you want to do with it, Then you need a place that lets you exercise the freedom to make those dreams come true, to pursue that happiness. So that's my first consideration. My next consideration is climate, as you like it. I keep getting pressure, man, from the people up in New Hampshire. Why don't you come be part of Free State Project? Hey, your buddy Vin Armani's doing it. Okay, it's freaking cold. I don't like it that cold. I actually love the place. About six months out of the year. The rest of the year, I don't like it. It's too cold for me. And there's a lot more to climate than just the atmospheric climate. There's a climate of people. There's a climate of how happy are your family going to be. That's part of your, your internal climate. So you needed to figure out the place that gives you the right climate from the macro and the micro standpoint to exercise your freedom and find your full happiness. Then value. You need a piece of property that gives you the ability to say, this was a mistake, I want to leave, and cash out and get out. All solid investments have exit strategies. When we went into the, 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 the first goal War, I'm sorry, the second goal four, one of the things the left said, and they were right about it, is, what's the exit strategy if this doesn't pan out the way we think it's going to? We don't have an exit strategy. And you hear that in the news and the media often about conflict. What is the exit strategy? Totally legitimate question. Why do we only use it for geopolitical discourse where we the people don't really have much to say about whether it happens or not anyway when we should be using it in our own lives? When I'm looking at a house to buy, I'm thinking to myself, what are two or three things that I know that I can do to this piece of property in the first year That a year from now, if something blows up in my world and I have to leave, I know that I can cash out and get out. Or I'm looking for a property that's so undervalued right now, the person's so desperate, that I could probably flip the property in 90 days doing almost nothing to it. I don't want to have to make, I don't need to have to make a lot of money doing that. I just need to have the option. I'm not going to buy a property that I'm not going to be able to sell for at least what I owe on it very, very quickly after buying it. I want value. And the best value comes from the ability to to increase value. It is is much easier to find a property that's selling at market value for the way it is now with easy, simple things that can be done to improve its value and improve your life while you're there to make your exit strategy even more sound. Especially if we do the improvements without debt. I don't even care if they're a wash. If we put $20,000 into a remodel... And when we sell the house, we get not a dime of profit on that twenty grand, But we didn't go into debt for that. We get the $20,000 back. Now I got cash. Now I can do something else with it. That's not ideal. That's my minimum threshold for do I do something on this property? Will it give me the ability to extract the equity back out of it into the future? This is a business decision. Then there's the other side of it. Does it improve my life sufficiently that I'm willing to pay for some of that? Especially if I think I found my forever place. The more I feel like I'm not leaving, the more I'm willing to, to realize okay, I'm gonna put twenty grand into this, it's gonna have fifteen thousand to the price of the property. That's not great. But since I'm not going into debt, I'd still, if I exited, have the fifteen grand. And if I'm here for five years, is this worth a thousand a year for those five years for me to have this? Yes or no? And you, you make those pragmatic decisions that way. And value is huge on when you're figuring things out. Next, size. I want to say this very clear. Farms are not homesteads. And remember that an acre can wear your ass out. So many people think they need so much land to be able to do what they want. And so many people, I think, are running away in their mind with the concept, I want goats, I want cows, I want pigs, I want chickens. Look, if that's what you want and you build a life on that and it works for you, God bless you, I wish you well, and I hope you stay happy with it. However, I've seen so many people get in so far over their heads with that approach. And when we take, especially if you've never managed livestock before, you're going to have losses. You're going to have animals die. You're gonna have time. It's gonna take time. Even when you think I've got a perfect system figured out, I saw a guy on YouTube do it. It worked for him. Yeah, he didn't show you all the things that broke. Okay, so you're gonna you get though that one or two animals, and one's better. And you build a system around that. And then when that system's really rocking and it doesn't take a lot of work anymore, then we consider another one. If you take that approach, you're going to find that you're probably not going to end up with 20 goats and 15 pigs and 100 chickens. And if you did that, you have a farm. And that's okay. And farms can be small, but in general, farms are larger pieces of land than homesteads. To me, if you can get 100 acres, do it. And if I had 100 acres that I was starting out on right now, I would probably focus for the first two or three years on one to two acres maximum. I have three, and I did too much here. I got excited like everybody else does. And I'm telling you, this year I've pulled back and I'm working on about one solid acre. And all of the things I've done for the years are really paying off, man. And it's incredible. It's incredible what's happening this year. And it is, it is a direct result of not only making a decision on the ducks that they're really not right for this system at this time in its evolution anymore. That it's not right in our lifestyle anymore. But it's also in actually making the decision to pare down and focus on this small area last year. And all that work I did last year now is paying off this year. And it's much easier to maintain about an acre of a homestead. And you could do almost anything you would ever want to do. So the reason I'm saying this is, a lot of times when people start saying, well, can I can I make this lifestyle change and live this life? And they end up with this budget that they think they have to meet, that they go, I just can't. I can't afford a half a million dollars to buy a place. Uh, yeah, you probably can't. But do you need to? So really think about that size and how much do you really need to do the things that you really want to do. And hopefully as we go through today, you'll realize that maybe you don't want to do as much as you think you want to do. <laughs> okay. Um, remember to look at all property through the permaculture lens. When I look at a property, the first things I say to myself, water access structure. Where's water on the property? Where can water be on the property? How do I get water to those places on the property? Water's first. The smaller the land is, that's the less dams and ponds we can do, but the easier to distribute water from the well or from the city or wherever you're getting it from, or from rain catch or what have you. The next is access. How can I get to all the spots on this property, and how do I make sure that anything that I design in, I don't design out access? And structure, what are the structures on this property? That's the primary value. Where can other structures go, and how do they fit in with the access and the water? If you'll remember that when you evaluate property alone, you'll do a much better job of evaluating property when you're looking at it as a homestead. And people say, well, that applies to like the big farms or at least you know, a few acre farm center. No, that can apply to, hey, we've made a real decision that we can actually make it go on a half acre in kind of a suburban, urban type, you know, small scale thing. You look at that property, water access structure, exactly the same way. Well, there's enough solar exposure there that I can put my greenhouse back there. That would be a structure. How am I going to get to that greenhouse? Well, there'll be a path here. That's access. Well, that structure represents an opportunity to capture water. We can put rain catch on there. How does the land flow and how can we move the water across the land off of the structure that is the home, the structure that is any hard, you know, hard packed area, and the structure that is now the greenhouse, which also harvests water. We can look at any size property through that lens of water access structure and we should. The next, neighbors. Will they be a bother? can they be and see item one item one was freedom as you define it so here's what i mean if you have pain in the ass neighbors that can be a problem if you live somewhere like i do unless you're cooking meth or something it doesn't matter they may not like it but there's absolutely nothing they can do about it there's literally no one for them to call If they call the sheriff, if it's not a criminal matter, he doesn't care. Well, his lawn is really unkempt, and there's bees flying around everywhere and all, and the sheriff's like, don't call us. But if you live somewhere where the Department of Making You Sad can show up, this is the problem with is the neighbor a bother versus can the neighbor become a bother. What if the neighbor moves and a new neighbor comes that doesn't like the way things are? Do they have a mechanism by which to suppress the freedom that you've moved there for? It's very important that you know that, and double verify things. We've had people on, on the show that we've supported in their efforts that have made the mistake of they called the, the city, the county, whatever, and said, "Is it legal to have goats here?" And the person said, "Yes, it is." They said, "Okay," and they bought the property and they moved there and they put goats there, and it turned out no, it wasn't. And the person that told them it was doesn't remember the phone call. Can't help them. No one knows what the hell or t- that type of thing. Verify and double verify the things that are really important to you. What are the restrictions? And by God, I'll have to say it, HOAs, no. No HOAs. If you want a homestead, you don't want an HOA. Because that is another layer of government. The only exception to that would be a community built around homesteading that has an HOA to make sure that nobody bitches about homesteading. That would be about it. And I don't even think you really need that. It's actually still a risk. It still can be taken over by blue hairs and ruined. Right? So neighbors, can they be a bother? Are they going to be a bother? Generally speaking, if you move to an area and everybody seems to kind of be homesteading along already, you got it made. They're not going to be upset. You are fitting into the community versus trying to change it. Because even though I hate HOAs, I do have no sympathy for the person that knows that knows they want a homestead, knows they want chickens, knows they want a little potbelly pig running around and buys a McMansion in the middle of an HOA and then bitches that they're not allowed to do it when they knew they couldn't do it when they got there. You, we, you have no more right to come in as an outsider and change the community than somebody has the right to come in your community and change your community as an outsider. So please do that due diligence first. And then opportunity. And the opportunities are many that we need to look at. For that day job, many of you, you are not going to be full-time farmers, homesteaders, etc. Most of you won't be. And so what is the opportunity to live and work in a place that you want to be? And I think that's one of the biggest things holding people back. They're waiting till they're done working, they're waiting till they retire, they're waiting till they save up enough to start their business. Go live where you can work. Even if you're not gonna work, even if you run your own business or something like that. So then what's the opportunity for your spouse, your kids, etc.? What is the opportunity for social engagement? If you guys like to shop, there's there's nothing wrong with liking to go places or going to nice restaurants. You should find a place with the opportunity to live the lifestyle that you most want to live and don't lie to yourself about what that is. If you're not a person that really wants to live a primitive off-woods lifestyle, you just like elements of it and you romanticize it, then build those elements into your life but grow somewhere that makes sense for you. And those are the ways that I look at choosing a property. And I consider not just myself, I consider my wife, my kids, my grandkids now. That's important to do. What are those opportunities for them? And before we side hustle, so we're going to also talk about side hustle today, we should also talk about self-hustling. This is how we actually make the property a homestead. So many people, I hear them talking, I can see the danger of where they're headed. I'm going to get a homestead, and I'm going to do a pick-your-own-orchard, and I'm going to raise pastured poultry and sell that at the farmer's market and do microgreens and sell them to a restaurant. Hold up! Hold up! Each one of those in of itself can be a full-time business that you have the potential to fail miserably at. Again, we're back to mastering one at a time, but the first thing that we should be doing is providing for us. Me, myself, I, and my family. So the first thing we want to do is grow what we can use or store and not much more. i got a lot of rhymes that just came to me when I was putting this together. But that's that's so fundamentally true. I see people, they go, they put a garden in, and they plant a shit ton of something that's uber productive, but they don't really eat it. Like radishes. I don't know how many radishes a person... Yes, they can be grown in 29 days, but if you don't like them, grow something else. Or people to grow massive quantities of something like sweet corn. I hope you have a plan for what to do with it all. I'm going to sell it, are you sure? I mean, start out with that small, easy-to-manage garden. Build the shit out of the fertility and the shit out of the productivity. Produce everything you can from the square footage that you have and feed yourself. Start to make the property, put food on your table, and feed and nourish your family. You will never regret the decision to start with four, or five, or ten raised beds that are just to feed you and your family. Go there first. Next, determine the local resources that you can hunt or gather. And don't create duplication of that. Where I used to live in Arkansas, I would have never planted a blackberry plant. I swear to God, I would never. Because the whole mountain in the spring for about four weeks was covered in blackberries. If I would have planted anything, maybe I would have planted uh, uh primocane blackberry that would produce a second crop in the fall when there were none on the mountain. But the, there was such an abundance of blackberry. I would have, in my hometown, you couldn't have paid me to use a, a square foot of that intensively managed area for blackberries. They were free. You couldn't pay me to plant muscadine grapes. They grew all wild ones everywhere. So I wasn't going to grow those things when the mountain was growing. Persimmons, wild persimmons grew everywhere. Those are three things I was never going to grow. There was no need to. Now, I might actually, if I'm doing it for larger production regions or something, like, maybe that actually is a good indicator. And maybe I do want to plant persimmons because this is a persimmon growing area. But for the feeding myself and my family, which was at the time me and Dorothy, there was no need to grow those things. We could grow other things. Fishing. Right, hunting and gathering. Determine those resources and develop a lifestyle that that fits you if you like to do those things. If you don't want to do that stuff, then don't do it. Next, develop a lifestyle that maximizes your life and minimizes your costs. One of the reasons couples get in fights, especially once they find this show or maybe Dave Ramsey's, is the one side of the couple listens finally to a voice of reason that is you are killing yourself with debt you will never be free you will die with student uh, debt being garnished from your social security check if you don't get your shit together and fix your life and they run to their spouse and go oh we got to stop spending money we got to stop spending money and the, the spouse is like oh bullshit i don't want my life screwed up i like it this way right so we we don't want to do that What we want to do is start focusing on what are the things that really will make our life better. I'll give you an example. I put a lot of effort into this property over the past four years, as many of you know. This morning, getting ready for this show, I walked around the property. I walked around roughly that one acre that I'm really spending my time and effort on you know right now. And I went from tree to tree and I looked at blossoms. I looked at the ones that were just beginning to bud out, the ones that were just beginning to leaf out, the ones that already had fruit set, and I walked by this autumn olive that I have a photo of in today's show notes, and that honeysuckle kind of jasmine perfume smell that those things have, that hit me. Taking that walk cost me nothing. It cost me money to build that, but now it feeds me. We're done. I mean, the cost of putting all this in... After this one season in food production alone, we're done. It's, it's, all, it's all upside from there, not to mention the value of the property. Somebody comes here and is interested in buying a property, and you walk around, there's food everywhere. Not doesn't work for everybody. It works for enough people that the market average says it's, it's done, paid for itself. But that walk doesn't cost me anything. How much quality do you think that builds for me? Yesterday, I quit working for a little bit in the middle of the day. Wasn't done yet. Had to come back and finish. But I went outside because I saw my wife walking my granddaughter around. I took my granddaughter and I set her up on the ledge of my wood frame timber pond that's full of the bluegills and sunfish in there. She loves fish. She loves to feed the little fish in my fish tank. She'd never seen those before. And I got some pellets out and I threw them and those fish were just going like piranhas on it. And she's going, oh, wow. Wow. Yay. What's the quality of life value there? And what's the cost? A dime worth of fish food? And what, what comes out of that tank? Fish tacos. See, this is the way to think. Before we worried about side hustling, can we make money? How can we save money and replace expenses with activities and a lifestyle that makes us happy to not spend money? Not miserable not spending money. Because when I want something nice, if I have the money and I want it, I go get it. I am not an anti-things person. But we don't always need things, and we don't always need to go somewhere. And more, most people in this country spend more money on stuff that they don't have a week after they pay for it than stuff that they do have a week after they pay for it. They spend it on food. They spend it on $4 coffees. The hell do I need a $4 coffee for? I'm walking around with a, with a, with a cup of Captain Picard tea, Earl Grey hot, that I've just brewed up in my kitchen. And I'm, and I'm smelling the jasmine-like odor of autumn olive in the morning and feeding fish with my granddaughter. I have no need. When I go somewhere, it is fully by choice, not out of some need to fill something. And every dollar you don't spend is as good or better than a dollar earned. Seriously. Especially if we take it and put it away somewhere, or we reinvest it to something that pays us back more. Then it's worth more than a dollar earned. Far more. Twice as much. If we earn a dollar and have to pay for something with it, then we traded our time for the thing. If we don't spend a dollar and we get something good anyway, (laughs) you see the difference. Not to mention it's not taxed when we do it that way. Next, automate, automate, automate. One of the reasons I really caution people, especially after my experience with our doc business, of going really big and really wide with things, is it ends up marrying you to the property. It becomes almost as expensive for you to leave as it costs to go on the vacation part of the vacation, like having someone take care of it, or business lost, or whatever, or losses of animals, losses of plants, etc. So if we go slow, and we automate everything we can, okay, I've got this done, it works really well, but I have to water this garden, Every day. Well, let's set timers up so I don't have to do that anymore. You know, back when I had a a, a a regular job, so to say, when I first started this show and I was driving, I liked watering the garden. I came home, I was ready to punch a hole in the wall. Yeah, I was ready. I, I legitimately was ready to punch a hole through the wall. Not in the right mindset to be with my wife. It's not fair to her for me to come home. After being on the road for 60 miles and dealing with ass clowns and dealing with you know business dinners and entertaining assholes I didn't really want to be around or whatever, so I came home, hey, kiss on the cheek, fake it for 10 seconds, grab a beer, go outside, turn the garden hose on, water the garden. And it was therapy. I also only had that, go- it was the only thing I had going on on that property. I didn't have chickens to take care of, I didn't have an aquaponics system. So that was fine for that. Still would have made sense to automate it if we want to go on vacation. Because that way we can go on vacation and come back and it's better than when we left. It actually seems like everything grew faster because we're not looking at it every five minutes to see if something grew new. So automate, automate, automate. When we get the ducks gone, I think we're down to like 30 ducks. When we get the ducks gone. Well, we got to rid of a lot of ducks to be still off 30. Uh, when we get the ducks gone, the little chickens are coming out of the aviary and they're going into what was the duck holding area. And they will do all the composting and stuff like that. And I am going to put an automatic door on the chicken coop. And I will teach them at night, go to the coop. And the core will close. And in the morning, the door will open. I'm going to get a deer feeder. Moultrie, 6-foot deer feeder. Pulse 350 50 pounds. I'm going to set it right in the middle of their holding area. I'm going to throw chicken food in it. And I'm going to set it. And two or three times, once we figure out what they eat and how long the duration, it'll throw pellets and they'll eat the pellets. Either that or I'll do a big hopper feeder. I haven't decided how I want to do this yet, but it will be to the situation where other than picking up eggs and bringing them compost, you could just not go there for a week and they're not going to die. They're going to be fine. That also makes it if we have to bug out, you can't bug out with all your chickens. You're not going to do it. I'm sorry. So if we have to bug out, you know, at any given point that if we bug out, they got at least a week that they're going to be okay. Automated watering, doors, et cetera, protected from predators, as long as whatever we're bugging out from, if it doesn't hit here, and we hope it doesn't because we'd love to come back, then they're going to be okay. So automate, automate, automate. Next, go slow. I know I've kind of already said this throughout, but go slow. One or two projects at a time. Less done right is better than more done wrong. There's times where you know I've got, I have gone too far, and I'm like I want to do this, and I end up having to spend a week that I thought I was going to have a lot of time to do new stuff, fixing stuff that broke, fixing stuff that went wrong. And every time I fix something that went wrong, I step back from it and go, okay, well, that's the patch. What's the prevention? You know, I got that way with, with the watering system this year. Hey, the patches, the pipe breaks, put a, you know, go out there, cut a piece out. How do I prevent the pipes from breaking when it freezes? I know, I'll shut the water off the property and blow all the pipes out with an air compressor. Once the ducts are gone, you know, that, the, the amount of the system that's blown clear in the winter is going to be much bigger, and not have to be turned back on in between, you know, the temp, the you know, the nice temperatures and the cold temperatures. And I know some of you guys up north well, but actually, barrier pipe doesn't work here. Sorry guys, four inches of soil on a lot of the property. I'd need a rock trencher to bury pipe, and I can't afford it. So those types of things, one or two projects at a time, and get them buckled down solid to where it literally takes. Five minutes of your time to maintain that system. If it's a garden, that five minutes is there's a weed, that weed's not big enough to feed the chickens yet. Uh, there's a piece of something to eat, there's something to eat, there's something to eat. There's a little space in the mulch there, a little mulch on it. Okay, done. When you get to there with your garden, now do something else. When you get to, okay, I'm going to go over to the chickens with the weeds from the garden, and there's the chickens in there. That goes in there. Here's the compost from inside for the chickens. There's my eggs. The feeder's good. Water's good. Birds are happy. Buy chickens. Now we do something else. You come out at night to check on everything. Chickens are in the chicken house. Door closed itself. Everything's good. Raccoons can't get in and kill them. Solid. Okay. Now I'm ready to do something new. Now I'm going to do my aquaponic system. You get that aquaponic system to where it's running, doesn't constantly mess up on you, you got it balanced, now you can make it a little bit bigger. If you take that approach, your life will be so much happier and your spouse won't end up hating what you've talked them into. And you'll feel like everything I do produces a result that gives me something, that cuts my cost rather than increases my cost, that gives me more time versus takes more time. And that I enjoy. So once we do that, now we can look at side hustles. And I'm not saying we can't do some of this stuff concurrently, but like if we have that mindset of this is what I want my life to be like, then the side hustle fits in. Um, one of the things I really try to tell people when it comes to side hustles is remember that we as a people, as preppers, as liberty-minded folks, we want to largely exist outside the system as much as possible. Everybody wants to talk about the advantages of building a corporation and using that for tax benefits and all. There is a place for agorism. And agorism, of course, is the, the absolute free market. Uh, the, the, the word, I believe, is from Greek, and it would be, the agora was just the marketplace. So it was just like the place that you went in the middle of town and you traded goods and services for money. And in most instances, there was no real oversight of that. People just did that. Who wouldn't stand for you know, the government getting in the way of it? And of course, the government just wanted everything to be peaceful, so they had their means of taxation. They kind of left the Agora alone. And they don't leave us alone today, do they? But there is a place for just understanding that what happens between you and your next-door neighbor is your business and nothing else. And I'll talk more about that as we go through, but just... Lagorism is a good thing, in my opinion. Okay. And next, sometimes it's okay to lose money. Usually it isn't. So when's it okay to lose money? When the activity that you're doing, you would probably have to do anyway, and it creates a tax deduction, then it's okay to lose money. And every other time it's not. Or I guess the other one would be, well, I'm going to lose money in my first year of operations. Here's my forecasted plan to make things profitable by year two. You need to track your time and your expenses. And if an activity is not profitable, it's either a hobby or we don't do it. I'm not going to say we don't do it because maybe it's a hobby and maybe you like it. But there's actually a good case to be made for. Try to make your hobbies at least pay for themselves. You know, People ask me, well, what should I grow for fish in my aquaponics system if I want to, if I want to you know, get a lot of fish out of it? A really beautiful koi. And you should sell them the yuppies and use that money to buy fish. Because it's the most profitable tactic. The aquaponic system is not a fish production system; it is a vegetation productive system. That has fish is a byproduct. If what you really want is protein in large quantities, then you know you grow a koi for two or three years and sell it for $150. That buys a lot of fish. Don't take, don't get it wrong. You know we we processed I think a good 40 tilapia this year. They're fantastic eating. Way better than the tilapia that come to the store. I'll tell you that. But, as a whole, you get a lot more vegetative production out of there. So, we need to make sure that we understand the profitability versus the hobby nature of what we're doing. And if we can make hobbies pay for themselves and break even, that's great. Especially if we do it as an agorist. Alright? And again, if you're not sure what agorism is, that's your word of the day. Go look it up. Go look it up. Um... Next, I think you should define the goal of your side hustler hustles. And I, to me, there's a lot of goals once we get down to, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to put a metal shop in my garage and do metal fabrication. right? Um, but that's when we get into those individual. I'm talking about the bigger overriding goal. And, and the two big classes of side hustles are transitional side hustles and pure side hustles. What do I mean by that? The transitional side hustle, we just had somebody ask the question about the metal shop. And they're starting to do metal fabrication and things like that for people. I believe that's what it was. And in that instance, it may be that, okay, so I work my J-O-B for ABC services. And I have this metal shop. And what I want to do is build up my metal shop to where I can go down to ABC services and say, you know what, it's been great, it's been real, it's been real fun. I appreciate the opportunity I've had here. I appreciate you giving me a livelihood and I want to walk away under good graces. Here's my letter of resignation. I'm giving 2 weeks notice and I bid you well and I wish you well. And if there's anything I can do to speed the to smooth the transition over, I'll do that. And they say, "Okay, great." And then 2 weeks later, you're in Joe's metal shop in your property and you've transitioned. That's why it's a transitional side hustle. The the entire point was, we're going to trial it as a side hustle. If it works, we're going to grow it to the point where it's sufficient to know that by walking away, I can grow it to a full-time income, and now this is what I do. Okay? The pure side hustle is, this is a thing that I do, that I like doing, that also makes me some money. And I have no intention of this becoming a transitional side hustle. And it doesn't mean that one of those might not actually turn into that. Because sometimes when we do a lot of side hustles, all of a sudden you go, oh my God, this not only works, I love it, it's what I was born to do. And you still have to be careful. There is a terrible movie, a movie that made me want to go get a baseball bat and commit suicide by baseball bat, it was that bad. I was talked into watching by a girl that I was dating before I met Dorothy. And it was called Hope Floats. And my response after seeing this movie was, Hope may float, but so does shit. But it had about 30 seconds of an incredibly insightful moment. This main character, dude, I could not tell you the name of anybody in this thing, was an incredible woodworker and cabinet maker. And this lady that he was kind of sweet on or whatever, I don't remember exactly how, but anyway, she ends up at his property. She kind of always looked down at him like he had nothing going on. And she looks at like the cabinetry and the house and the beauty of it all. And she said, you did this? And he says, yeah. And she says, well, why don't you do this for other people? People would pay a lot of money for this. And he said, oh, that's great. Take something you love and turn it into what you do for money and destroy it. I think that can be true, but it doesn't have to be true. And we need to be mindful of that as we're figuring out what we're doing with our side hustles. My great-uncles and grandparents' generations, they all had side hustles. Little things here and little things there. We'll talk about some of them. But they were never designed to be transitional side hustles. They were just, you know, this is a thing that I'm good at. And for really close friends... Maybe I do it as a favor once in a while. But overall, like I do this thing, and then people know I do that, and so they'll come to me for that, or I'll go to them and say I could do this for you. And and that generation was very entrepreneurial because they lived at a time when you had to be. You know, they lived through the Great Depression. They understood the value of what you knew and could do. So here's some stuff that I think about from discussions today on Zello and from memory of my, my family and, and all things put together, we actually had somebody ask this question, and I'm not even sure if it was the same person I heard on Zello today, but what to do with a whole bunch of super hot peppers. Like, you could do novelty and sell plants to people or harvest them and what have you. And the one guy that was on the air today said, I don't know how many um, ghost peppers or whatever they were that I got off of one plant this year. But I know that the last harvest was over a 100, what would we do with a buttload of hot peppers? See, to me, what I would do is I would develop either a fermented pepper sauce or I would develop a powder, which I think is an even better, and maybe multiple versions of it with different levels of heat. And I would store the raw materials... And I would market the unique nature of these things are grown or sourced and how and what they are and how I put them together in my own cook kitchen. I would sell it if necessary with protection under basically local cottage food laws. But I would primarily start out doing it as an agorist. And, and, and here's what I'm, I'm trying to say. like One of the things we need to do when we think of these, these pure side hustles is, well, how much money do I really need to be this worth doing? If you can make 50 bucks a week on something... Plus two hundred dollars a month. Two hundred dollars a month invested. If that just becomes what you invest in your retirement account, and you piss away the rest of your money, most Americans, if they started doing that in their early twenties, would retire multimillionaires from something that simple. And we don't need to make fifty off a side hustle. If we have a few little things we do, and we can make fifty bucks to a hundred bucks a week in the combination of them, and maybe sometimes that income's bursty. In other words, it's a little bit here and there throughout the year, and then there's maybe one big thing that we do. I knew a lady where I grew up. It's not on my list of things, but I'll, I'll throw it out as an example. She made the most incredible apple crumb cake in the world. It was absolutely to die for. It's not like a bunt cake with a hole in the middle and all. I, I, I can't even begin to tell you how good this was. And you only got it once a year because she only made it once a year and she worked her ass off for about a week once a year making these cakes for everybody. We got two for free because we had a whole shitload of apples that fell off a tree that they weren't really good for much else. There were apples from the time when people would just throw an apple core out and maybe a tree grew and you didn't cut it down. And I would gather a bunch of these up and I would take them to her. And we get two Apple cakes for free. She sold these things for 10 bucks a cake. This is the 80s. 10 bucks for a cake in the 80s was quite... But no one bitched. She sold every one she could make. Sometimes people would buy one and wrap it up really good and put it in the freezer just so you could taunt somebody with a piece of it later when they were all gone. I don't think the woman ever bought an apple in her life. She had enough people like us that brought her apples in exchange for a cake or two that she didn't have to buy apples. So her investment was her time and basically flour, sugar, and I guess probably, I don't know how the hell you make it. I never learned. That's just one example of a bursty source of income. And I'm sure that did a good thing for her. She wouldn't have worked that hard. She was an older lady. You could tell that it kind of wore her out that week, but she only did it once a year. And I promise you, I promise you, She was doing it in an agorist model. I guarantee you. Again, look that word up if you don't know what it means. Uh, So with this hot pepper thing, we could be producing plants for people that want them, but we could also be producing a a pepper uh, powder, like a chili powder type thing. And I think actually bringing the heat way down and making it unique and different has a lot going on for it. And once we had a few different ways that we made it, We don't have to make a whole bunch of it up so it just sits there. We can make it up on demand. That would be another example of what we could do. And you're not going, unless you take it big, you know, Joe Blows pepper powder or something like that, and you end up in grocery stores, you're not going to make a full-time income on something like that. But can you make a few hundred dollars a year? Maybe. For what? Do you like doing it? Is it a lot of work? I mean, then maybe you don't do it. If you like doing it, it's not a lot of work, then maybe you do it, right? Um, Everybody wants to sell eggs. I know a little bit about selling eggs. We went from being very profitable selling eggs to losing money selling eggs. Same price, same birds, same productivity. Tell you what happened. Dorothy no longer was running the business. And that was a big part of our decision. Dorothy went from, when we moved here, going, I don't, Jack, I don't have anything to do. I've worked my whole life. You know, at least when we were in Arkansas, we had an office away from the house. I went there and did my work with you and hung out there for a bit. And I had the mountains to walk and everything. So I, I, you know. But even that, I was kind of bored. And now we're moving back here. And I don't have anything to do. And I said, okay. Well, what do you want to do? And we had gotten some chickens. She said, well, let's try selling the eggs. So we started selling chicken eggs. We ended up selling some duck eggs. Duck eggs were profitable. Chicken eggs were, were not. Chickens went out. Ducks came in. And I taught her. I designed a system. I taught her to run the system. And I taught, I built a business system. I showed her how to run that business system. And I backed off and said, it's yours. I don't want to do this. You do. And she was fantastic. If we lost a restaurant in a day, she had another restaurant. We didn't have a single egg go to waste. We weren't donating eggs to charity. We weren't boiling up eggs for dogs. I could, I had 120 ducks. And I had to eat chicken eggs. I couldn't even afford... To eat my own eggs because they were all sold. I'd, I'd, I'd get caught eating some duck eggs every once in a while she'd yell at me. And then, boom, grandchildren. And she wasn't running that business as an operational business anymore. Now, hey, I got to get her some help. I hire a young kid. He's an expense. She's not now. He's taking care of some of the the, the grunt work, but he's not going to be out there getting us a new restaurant. He's not going to be out there hammering the whole customer list when we have a surplus. Because when we did have a surplus in the past, all she did was pick up her phone and start texting. And she'd go through 30, 40 people. And she she, she, she actually, when she first started, she'd come to me and go, I'm a little worried. we got like 25 dozen eggs in the refrigerator right now that I don't have sold. And it's like, just last week you were screaming for supply. And then I'm like, well, go do do your system. And she'd come back in like 15 minutes. They're all gone. It's just exciting, right? And she enjoyed it. But once she doesn't have time to do that anymore, it doesn't become profitable. And this is the thing with farm-based businesses. If you're going to scale them to size, they have to be run like operational businesses or you're not going to make money. So you're better off, if you wanted to do something like that, is then you have just enough to sell to four or five people that are consistently going to buy from you. A dozen or two eggs at a time. Now we can do this. And if you live in a rural area where everybody does it, it's much more difficult. So we have to think about it. So with livestock, egg business, you got to actually run the numbers in advance and you need to slowly scale into these things. And it, it is a challenge and I'll tell you why. It's pretty easy to be small and sell 10 dozen eggs a month for 80 bucks and cover your feed and what have you and manage that. That's that's actually pretty easy to do. It is not easy, but it's very doable to build a hardcore business on something like that and move 200 dozen a month. It's very difficult to be in the middle because you do not have enough supply to maintain a customer base in the middle. You either have a guaranteed consistent few people and if you lose one person and they don't buy a dozen, you got to find one person. Or that week, the dogs eat a dozen eggs. right? I mean, that, that's easy to adjust to. When you're sitting in that middle, because we had losses where it pushed us back to the middle, it was very difficult to maintain the customer base. And I'll tell you, eggs are not going to make you a fortune. They have to be the core of a business with other products. So if you want to go farm business you gotta you gotta really think about it. So I think with the livestock and stuff, it is better to produce just enough for yourself. Maybe less than you can use until you perfect your systems, and then grow just enough that everything you produce in, a, in excess of what you can use is gone. And if it's not gone, don't grow beyond that. Next, I talked about agorism. And I talked about what I remember of being a kid and seeing my grandparents and my great uncles and all their little side hustles and stuff. And when I came up with one of my little rhymes for today Granddaddy made shine, and Buddy Shoemaker made wine. So I think Granddaddy made shine is pretty evident. I'll tell the Buddy Shoemaker stories for some of you that haven't heard in the past. Just up the road from me, there's a guy named Buddy Shoemaker. Buddy Shoemaker probably had more social capital then the chief of police and the mayor and the entire town council put together uh, along with the priests of the three biggest churches in the county. that That's how much social capital Buddy Shoemaker had. And what did Buddy Shoemaker do? He made homemade wine. And I know when I want to say granddaddy makes shine. Well, that's illegal and revenues and all. But I'll tell you what, Buddy Shoemaker's history of making wine went back before that little law they passed in the 1970s that made it okay. Way back. All right. And for instance, we got some really nice wine from Buddy every year, about a gallon of it. And we would take a whole bunch of grapes off of our grapevines up and just give him the grapes and he would give us the wine back. And he made a little bit more than a gallon. And he did a lot of barter and he did some sales. And this is all highly illegal with quotes around it. Real quotes, not air quotes. But I'm just saying Buddy Shoemaker did this and no one gave a damn. And Buddy shoemaker didn't have a sign that said, wine for sale. And there was no Facebook, but I guarantee you if he had been around when Facebook was around, he would not have been on a Facebook group selling his wine. Friends and family. Okay? And I'm going to tell you, some of his customers were things like, mm, the local police department, just saying. And you got to think when you're doing anything outside of the boundaries of legality, what the risk is and what the potential is, and you got to make your own decision about something. I'm just saying that these people did this. That's all I'm saying. And there's a path to legitimacy there if you want it to be in those worlds. And then there is you and your next-door neighbor. And barter, in many instances, the old phrase goes, barter is better. So if I make wine and my neighbor's a lot better at growing black Spanish grapes than I am, then I'm not sure that any law is violated if he gives me a whole bunch of black Spanish grapes and I make wine, which is totally legal, and then I take that wine and I give some of it back to him. I don't think that violates anybody's law. Now, I think there's some taxes that are supposed to be paid about that, but your word of the day is agorism. All right? Granddaddy made shine, and Buddy Shoemaker made wine. And I know people doing those things right now as side hustles, and they're not going to retire on it. But again, if we start breaking the numbers down, it's not that you can't. It's it's probably not the way you would expect. Uh, If you're going to grow crops, grow something that's a specialty crop. When I was in Hot Springs, Arkansas, they had a little rinky-dink farmer's market. And I always wanted, you know, I love farmer's markets, so I go down to farmer's market. And 80% of the people there had a table full of cucumbers, tomatoes, and peppers. And they never sold any. Do you know why? Because everybody that cared enough about health and good quality food and all. I'm not going to say they didn't say, sell any. But, I mean, you'd see them at the end of the day with a still a table full of shit. I'll put it that way. But everybody that really cared, it a great climate for growing things, had a garden and grew peppers, tomatoes, and cucumbers. So they didn't go to the farmer's market for the stuff that they easily were producing themselves. The guy that did the best there, and I bought quite a few chickens on them, was a the guy that did pastured chickens. He also did rabbits, but because of the law, you had to go to his farm to pick the rabbits up. He couldn't sell them at the farmer's market. So we really need to you know, kind of think about how we're doing things. So examples of specialty crops would be things like microgreens. And, and there's a lot of people in this audience. They've gotten big into the microgreens. You know, John Dowie has Dowie Farms. He's got a place he rents now. He produces a, a shit ton of microgreens. And he has restaurant supply places, All or restaurants all the place he sells direct to. And, and he's brought in other product lines and stuff. And he's making a go of it like that. And, and you can do that. But what if you came up with a really great microgreen blend for a salad and you just perfected it for yourself and you know that kind of would change through the seasons. What would be best for different seasons? And you you just spent a year perfecting your method, just to grow your own food with microgreens to produce food for you in a couple of weeks or less. And once you had that schedule down, and you had taken some time and got to know people in your community, you you put together a couple clamshells and went to people and said, "Hey, try this as a salad. Try this on a burger, etc." And then you got, I don't know. Ten people that you make $5 off every two weeks. That's 50 bucks. I didn't say $5 in revenue. I said $5 you made, so that's profit. That's a side hustle. That's $100 a month. A lot of people use $100 a month to get out of debt. A lot of people use $100 a month to invest. A lot of people could just take that $100 a month, put it in a jar, and be better off. And that's one little side hustle. And if you, if you do it the way I just described it, you can grow as you gain customers, and you can reach a point where you go, this is starting to be like work. I don't want to do anymore, and you stop. Or you grow beyond it. It's up to you when you get to that point. But you can get to a point where it's probably where you're not doing that much more work than you were for yourself, but now it's paying for itself, and eventually it starts to make a profit. These are all the non-transitional side hustles that we're talking about here. Uh, vacation cabins. I think if you have a big enough property and a cool enough property, vacation cabins is probably the number one thing you can do as a side hustle. And there's a couple reasons I love this idea. Number one, as long as it's actually a cabin, and people like they go out there and they stay out there and that's what they do and there's a trail there and a pond there and blah, 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 you don't have to do much. You can even hire someone locally to do the housekeeping shit when they leave and build that into the cost. So you don't even have to do that. Additionally, what do I always say? we make an improvement, it should create an exit strategy. There is no world in which you buy a nice little place, 20, 30 acres, ponds and stuff like that, and you put a couple little vacation rentals in there, and you have a track record of successful rental of them, that the value of the property does not increase more than the cost of putting those cabins in unless you did it in a really stupid way. So there's an underlying asset value increase there. And it's a perfect lifestyle business. Let's say you want to go away for a month. You just don't rent the cabins for that month. And the way you do this is that you put in one tiny house cabin, call it whatever you want to. And when you start having to turn people down because you got two people trying to do it at the same time, and not just once, multiple occurrences, now you build another one. And you build it as big as you want to the point where now it's starting to be like work. I don't want to do it anymore. And I think function stacking multiple layers of these types of, 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 of side hustles is a lot easier and do, more doable for many people than trying to make any one of them to something huge. Many of them will be seasonal. Next one, self-fertility. You know you build that garden, build an awesome composting system, start making compost teas, worm teas, whatever, and, and, and make your garden blow and go for a year or two, and then show everybody what you're doing, and they said, "Well, how do you do that? Well, you know, like I can say some of this humic acid, and you use that, and you can use a little bit of this compost tea and some of my worm tea, and here's some comfrey, and you know, basically sell fertility to other people. Most people that want a garden don't know how to do this stuff, or they don't have the time to do this stuff. If you've built a lifestyle where you have the time, then again, it doesn't have to be, you know, have to be the next Howard Garrett with Garrett Juice. All you need is a half a dozen regular customers." For this, and a half a dozen for that. And you get to be known, and you start getting people to refer you. And when you get to a point where you don't want to do anymore, then you get to use the most powerful word in sales and marketing. No. And what happens is the person that you ha- that you already have will not leave. Your customer will not leave. If I leave, he's going to take someone else. i got to get them in the back of the line. I'm never going to get back in. And if you do lose somebody, there's a po- somebody waiting for the opportunity to become your customer. This is all in how you handle and market yourself. But definitely selling fertility is an option. How about plant propagation? We've done a lot on that. But to me, the ability to propagate plants and sell them is like the ability to print money. And again, you can build a nursery. And it, or you can let people sample goji berries. And when they go, wow, those are really good. You can say, well, I sell plants for $15 a plant. Or you can buy them in the catalog for 25 are they hard to grow? No. Here's a little bit of fertility to go with it. Put this on it. That's 10 bucks. See, this is the problem. People try to make everything complicated. I guarantee you that there's, there's probably a market, if you wanted to, just make a sweet potato slips every year. If you get really good at it first, do it for yourself. All these things, you should do them for yourself and get good at them. What about workshops? First of all, not as easy as everybody thinks. But you can do workshops if there's enough people there. This is about location. Always, got to go back to location. If there's not enough of a market, or everybody, if you move to the backwoods of West Virginia and you think you're going to do a workshop on how to take care of pigs, you're going to have a hard time putting butts in seats. Even with the the reach that I have and the workshops we do here and selling them out every year in a couple hours, I'll tell you one of the reasons we're able to do that is not just because of the size of the community and the market that we have created. It's because you can get on an airplane from anywhere in the damn country and get to DFW Airport in one connection or less. And then in 30 minutes, you're here. And if you want to do something else while you're here, there's a great big metroplex south of here that you can go do other stuff in. And there's enough of a market here that 25% of it that sells out is local people. And when I say local, I mean a three-hour drive or less. Now, if you are in the middle of the mountains in Montana where Paul Wheaton is, selling out a workshop, no matter how big your empire is, is harder to do. And I think there's people that could probably do a pretty good little side hustle, run four or five workshops a year that are how to make compost, how to grow rabbits, what have you. 25, 50 bucks a head. The more you provide, the more you have to charge. I always feed people. When you feed people, you've got to charge more money. Our biggest budget is feeding people and the staff to feed people. You know, that's our biggest budget items when we do most of these workshops. Maybe flying somebody in if there's someone special we want to bring in, but most of it's food and staff. And the majority of what the staff does is make sure people eat well. Because I've determined when you feed people well, they're happy even when some stuff goes wrong. But probably the next biggest budget item in our workshops is hortigrants. In the past, we've done some with heavy equipment. All we've had equipment, somebody to run the equipment, stuff like that. But in general, that's that's our big expenses now. So workshops, I think, can be useful, but I think workshops have to be run either as a community outreach, which is mainly what we do, or for a specific profit. People that think to run workshops and get shit done. You do, but you end up putting a lot of work into fixing things that get done wrong by students, because you can't get in somebody's face like they're an employee when they paid you to be there. So you, you, you have to use some temperance with that. Uh, crafting. I think crafting's great. I see people building all kinds of stuff out of fencewood and stuff like that. That's all great, but build what you can sell, and enough to have enough inventory to demonstrate what you can do so that you can sell. Because I've seen people, like, their whole damn workshop is stacked with shit they've built, and they have no market. You know, get it into some craft stores or something like that. Um, build a few things and see if people are interested in it. Develop a sales channel. Again, you don't have to have a lot of business. The problem with like the craft style business is, is it's not a consumable. So if I sell you a chair or a set of chairs, you're probably not coming back for more. Or if you do, you're not coming back for that. You're not going to come back weekly or monthly as a customer unless you're a distributor for me, a storefront, something like that. So that's that's the limitation there with crafts and kind of doing the agoras friends and family thing. Unless you can get enough referrals to where somebody's like, I've been looking for this something here. Oh, I know a guy. If you can become that guy, then you can do a lot with it. Uh, I've seen people do well just doing around here. Either one guy, all he does is a, a game called cornhole, which is basically these big bean bags that are full of the shell corn, and there's two big boards and you throw them and try to get them in a hole. And he does them in all the different colleges and stuff like that, painted up with the mascots and all, which I'm sure is highly trademark infringement, but I'm telling you, he's not selling them in stores. I'll just put it to you that way. And you're like, oh man, I wish I could get one for Texas Tech. I know a guy. That type of thing can be successful as well with crafting. And then bees. So everybody else going to bees, and I'm going to sell honey. My bee mentor, a guy named Jason, he's a paramedic full-time, and he does bees. He makes quite a bit of money doing bees. I'll tell you where he makes the majority of his money in bees. Removals. People call him up, I got bees in my attic. Okay, that's gonna be at least five hundred bucks, it might be more. Wanna look at it, I'll let you know. Well, I'm not paying that. Well, I'm not coming. Click. But he does removals, especially this time of year when swarming starts, constantly. And he's gonna charge a significant amount of money if it's just a big clump of bees in a tree and you're gonna go shake them into a bucket. Now you can sell the bugs. Or you put them into a hive, divide it, and sell two nukes. He makes the most of his money off of removals. Next place he makes money, pollination. He's big enough. He has like an organic cotton farm. They need bees to do the pollinating. Take 50, 80, whatever it is, hives out to the cotton farm. And the bees do the pollination and then they come back. Okay? That's number two income source. And then he does sell honey. The honey is a byproduct of the pollination business. And he's, he's a beekeeper that doesn't like honey. And I switched him on to making mead. And he makes mead. And you know what he does? He buys honey to make mead. Because it's worth more to him to sell that honey for a profit than it is to use it to make his own mead. Interesting, isn't it? Now, I know another guy. Not, see... Jason's running that bee business like a full-time business, and his basically plan is to work until he has retirement as a as a paramedic and then do the bee business full-time. All right, so it's transitional side hustle that's being run almost full-time now. And being a paramedic, you know, you kind of do the four-day, three-day thing, stuff like that, so he has the time to be able to do that. Now, I know another guy, not transitional, pure side hustle with bees. His name's Chris. He's in Ohio. Chris's philosophy is you can make honey, or you can make bees. Bees are more profitable and less work than making honey. So he gets some honey for his own use and all, but primarily what he does, he runs a whole bunch of hives. He splits them every year. He doesn't do that much work to maintain them. He lives in a climate where bees do really well without too much supplemental feed. He does feed them like he's supposed to. doesn't care that much about the quality of honey except for a few hives he keeps for himself and for friends. For major honey production, all he does is split hives and make bees. He'll split a hive into three hives and make two nukes out of it, plus the core hive, and build that hive back up to next year and then split it again. He makes a a, a couple hundred nukes, which are basically like half a box of bees, every year. He sells them on one weekend, puts out advertisements, got nukes for sale, it's gonna be this weekend. Cash and carry only, call and reserve. If you don't show up, I'm selling your bees to somebody else. Makes a significant, I'm not going to give away the guy's amount of money, but a significant amount of money to really actually work two days a week, two days a year. And he's done for the year. Now the bees are just being built back up. All I do is feed them, get them built back up in population high enough that next year I can split them again. That's it. And when he showed me his method of splitting, it was incredible i got these three boxes. I come out and I take this box and I put it here and I put that box there and I put lids on them. That's it? Yep, that's all I do. Holy crap. That's the concept of the pure side hustle versus the killing yourself to run a part-time job business. And there's tons more than that we could do. But... There's no way I can go into every side hustle that you can come up with. Pick your own orchard? Great idea. Why don't you grow enough fruit to eat first, though? You know, I want to become a a professional mead maker. Make your own mead. Grow enough to make... You're probably going to have to get into a situation, if you want to be a professional mead maker, get licensed and all that stuff, set up your meadery, that you're going to rely on somebody else for product. You probably are not going to do both. You might... But you're probably not going to. And you're probably better off doing one first. And then we can do both. And this is the mentality to come at this with. But I do want to speak here at the end to this concept. There's nothing wrong with a half acre with no side hustles at all. Well, we just go fishing on the weekends. We have a nice garden. We have a little flock of chickens. We have a little worm bin. We have a nice, designed Zone 1, Zone 2 system, and our life is better for it. And we spend less money, and we like being home more than we did before. It doesn't have to get as big as it did today with my descriptions of it. We have to determine what we want for ourselves. And a lot of times what I see where people make themselves miserable is they get romanticized into the ideas that other people want and convince themselves that that's what they want. You know what I want? I want a hunter-gatherer lifestyle on my own property. I want to go out and forage for my, for my dinner. I love the fact that this year we're going to have like so much fruit. I'm not going to know what to do with all of it. I'm going to be making meat out of my brains, freezing it, making all kinds of stuff, giving some of, I love that. It won't be enough to make money on. Don't even want to try. Don't care to because I won't have any next week. You know, come in the big glut. But what I look forward more to is having something available right now and all the way until it freezes to the ground again. And I know that we'll be eating something off of our property daily, if not at least every other day. If we don't do it daily, it's because I didn't feel like it that day. And, and that's okay. I think that's what's actually the best for the most people. You see, like, homesteading can be like a big thing that is a business built into it or lots of side hustles built into it, or it can just be. And it, it's, that's, that's what we have to look at. What is the best thing for the most people? And do that first, because that will probably work for you. And then you determine, do I want to grow beyond that? First, feed your family. First, provide for yourselves. Then worry about providing for others. Until you're producing a product that you're so in love with that you don't want it from anybody but yourself, work on that. Once you get there, then other people will probably only want it from you, too. That doesn't mean you don't try a little thing along the way. If you can sell your surplus chicken eggs for 2 bucks a dozen and that's all you can get for them, but they're all gone, you don't have to worry, then do it. Then do it. But you ain't going to make no money doing it that way. If you want to make money with an egg, you're going to be selling eight bucks a dozen and up. You can't do that. Don't try. Then just make enough for yourself. Make them some pickled eggs, sell them to your Uncle Joe, make some money on those. Stay away from Uncle Joe if you drink some beer with him because it's going to drop bombs like you ain't never heard. But other than that, just build something that works for you and your family. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Really appreciate the folks on Zello that helped me came up with the topic today. I want to remind you one of the ways you can help support this show. Is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you can help support the work that we do here uh, simply by doing your online shopping there. You don't have to do anything else. Now, you'll see all the stuff that we uh, review, and everything that I've reviewed is something that I I use or I've checked out thoroughly. Today's one I don't really use. You guys won't hear me talk a lot about making bread. Bread is a high-carbohydrate intake, and I try to keep my carbs down. Uh, when I let myself eat carbs for a few years and I knew I shouldn't have, I put an awful lot of weight on and uh, I'm, I'm not going through ever having to take it off again. I'm just not. Uh, but this book, for those of you that do eat bread that don't have that impairment or just don't care, is probably the best book on making bread that I've ever reviewed. And it is awesome. It's called Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day. And the concept is pretty simple. They give you a method of making dough. You make up your dough on Sunday. And each day during the week, you pull off a piece that's enough to make your bread for that day, and you throw it in the oven, and it takes about five minutes a day. It really is that easy. It really does work. There's a lot of great recipes uh, and a lot of great technique in it. It's easy to learn, and everybody that I've heard back from that's, that's tried this book loves it, and many people have it incorporated into their lives. If they're a daily or you know every other day bread eater, they love this because they have that fresh, real homemade bread every day. And I think back to like my grandma, talking about side hustles. One of my grandmother's side hustles was bread baking. Now, she didn't do this. It was truly, it was like a lot like the lady that made the apple cake I'm talking about. There's certain things in the Ukrainian world uh, and certain times. And there's a bread called paska bread, which is basically just homemade bread like she made all the time with a cross on it and an egg wash. And uh she would make a bunch of it around that one time and people would buy the loaves of bread from her, for like five bucks a loaf. Um, But I think about even when she was just making bread for the family and like it being an all day affair and this being so much easier, it makes it more doable for people that have real regular lives that are trying to run their little homestead. So check it out again. It's called artisan bread in five minutes a day. You can find it at tspaz.com, which just takes you to a section of the survival podcast website with all of my reviews available to you. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. The song of the day today is called Only the Young by Journey. Um, this song was originally recorded for Journey's 1983 album, Frontiers, but it pulled, was pulled off at the last minute. The song was finally released as a single off the soundtrack to the movie Vision Quest, which is about a high school wrestler, if I remember right, which also included Madonna's Crazy for You. Uh, The more interesting part of the story of this song is through the Make-A-Wish Foundation, Journey hooked up with 16-year-old Kenny Skellick, who was suffering from cystic fibrosis, and played the song for him in his hospital room. Skellick, who was a huge Journey fan, died that night, leaving the band deeply affected. Quote, As soon as I stepped out of the hospital room, I lost it, said Steve Perry. Nurses had to take me to a room by myself. Inspired by Scalic's journey used only the young as a concert opener throughout the Raised On radio tour. Um, it's a pretty interesting story. To me, this song, in some ways, though, is, uh, what it really says is, that, how have I put it in the past, that youth is wasted on the young. The young people don't know how great their opportunities are. Let me give you the lyrics. It's not actually a very long song, song lyrics-wise. Another night in any town, you can hear the thunder of their cry. Ahead of their time, they wonder why. In the shadows of a golden age, a generation waits for dawn. Brave carry on, bold and strong. Only the young can say they're free to fly away, sharing the same desires, burning like wildfire. They're seeing through the promises and all the lies they dare to tell. Is it heaven or hell? They know very well. Youth is wasted on the young. The the Only they are free to fly away. You think about, like we talked about homesteading today, and when you were 18, you probably really could have done anything you wanted. It might not have come without sacrifice, but if you just want to pick up and go somewhere, I couldn't have because I was in the military, but once I got out, that's exactly where I was, and it was exactly what I did. I spent about three, four months on the Appalachian Trail. I moved here to Texas, just picked up and just came here and figured out what I want to do in my life. And I I guess I could kind of do that today. I would end up with this business in a downspin or whatever. But I probably have more freedom than than I have other than being that young at any time in my life. But, you know, when I was in my 30s raising my son and taking care of my wife and traveling all over the country with people I really didn't want to see, I didn't have that kind of freedom anymore. The youth have that freedom. And what it makes me think of is I think one of the reasons that our young people have so many problems today They've been convinced that their life sucks. And I'm not talking about 90s teenager, you know, kind of like emo type, you know, life sucks or whatever. I'm talking about, like, they actually think, like, their future sucks. There's no real, like, it's just terrible. Like, this is a horrible time to be alive. The world's going to end. The polar bears are going to die. Blah, 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 blah. You're going to get shot in school, even though you're far more likely to get killed on a school bus than shot. I mean, it's just, it's sad. And they've been convinced that there's no real future for them. They don't realize they're living at the time of their life when they are free to fly away to live to their fullest and figure out what they really want. And we've done it to them. We've done it to them. That's what this song makes me think of. Because I kind of remember being 19, 20, 21, 22 years old and being in this kind of place and looking only forward with optimism. And I kind of feel like even when people were kind of down and out, pretty much everybody around me looked that way, lived that way, felt that way. And if you're working on that homestead dream we talked about today, that's how to get there. Look ahead. Look back for lessons and ahead for inspiration. The now, make the most of it. And don't let your youth be wasted on your youth if you're still young. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life. If times be tough, we're even fed up.